The Apostle Peter actually talked about a sign of the last days. He said mockers would come in the last days with their mocking, asking a question, where is the promise of his coming? Jesus promised he's coming again. That's in Mark 13, and it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. The last chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote in his lifetime, he's in prison, he's gonna die at the hands of Caesar Nero. And he says these words, 2 Timothy 4, verse seven. He says, I fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up, 2 Timothy 4, 8, for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved, what? His appearing. And then go to Titus, the next book to the right, chapter two. Titus two. The Apostle Paul tells us that grace teaches us how to live. Titus two, it instructs us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, Titus 2.12, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope, Titus 2.13, that's what the second coming is. It's the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. If you're interested, Bible students, this is a verse that calls Jesus God. Jesus is called our great God and Savior. He's appearing again in glory, and we're to look for that blessed hope. He's the one, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then one more is 2 Peter all the way near Revelation chapter three, 2 Peter three. Peter's talking about the last days and mockers that will come, 2 Peter three, three. He says, first of all, know this, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking and they will be following after their lusts, own lusts, 2 Peter three, four. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Skip down to verse nine, 2 Peter three. The Lord is not slow about his promise regarding that coming that was talked about in verses three and four. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? (laughs) Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, that is in my view, the second coming of Jesus when he judges and saves, saves and judges, will come like a thief, that is to the world, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat, But according to his promise, we are the church. We're looking for new heavens and new earth and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Would you turn back to Mark 13? 
So those are a few verses I could give you more about the teaching of the second coming. You'll notice that the teaching of the second coming is a judgment of God. He's gonna judge the world in righteousness, but before he judges the world, he will rescue his people. Now there's a debate as to when that will happen. When will the rapture happen? And I'm not gonna get into that debate this morning. There's good people who disagree uh, on the timing of the rapture, but here's what I do know uh, solidly, and I, I give you a slew of verses for many of this, but for the sake of time, we as the church have not been appointed to wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 say the same thing. We have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the church will not experience God's wrath. That's what we know for sure. Okay, so before that wrath comes, before the actual judgment comes, the Lord will remove his bride is my understanding of the Bible. Now we get into Mark 13, verse one. That's why I told you this will be done in multiple parts. <laughs> Mark 13, verse one. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Now the the temple in Israel was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It took probably about 80 years to build it. You guys will remember that in John chapter two, when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, somewhere around 30 AD, he cleansed the temple and they confronted him and Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He was speaking of the temple of his body, not the physical temple. And they said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it up in three days? Now think with me, mathematicians. If it had been 46 years and it was AD 30, add 40 more years when the temple falls and you have the, the calculation. The temple had been, been being worked on for maybe as much as a century. It was completed, actually, historians tell us, in around AD 66. And the temple was an incredibly uh, impressive building, but for the Jew, it was the center of their socio-political life and religious life. It was a sense of pride, identity. There are people in Israel today, it's been their goal for the last several decades to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They have a temple institute right now in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt all of the implements for the temple. They have them all done. You can see some of them when you go to Israel. Right now, they are training priests that they believe go back to the line of Levi, and they are training them to do temple sacrifices. There's even a comment in a recent article somebody gave me that they're showing them how to use modern equipment like mixing machines to do the grain offering. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> Just use a little mixer. <laughs> anyway, this is what they're doing now. They're training Levitical priests. But there's a problem. I think most of you know what the problem is. The Temple Mount, control of the Temple Mount, even though Israel became a nation in 1948, reborn after some 2,000 years, and recaptured Jerusalem in 1967 as a peace offering, they gave control of the Temple Mount to the Arabs. And all of us who are Bible students and stuff say, rats and double rats. Why did they do that? Well, it was, a, it was an offering of peace. It was a token. It was an olive branch. And so now, up on the Temple Mount, when you see pictures of Israel and you go to, if you have a chance to go to Jerusalem, if you go up on the Temple Mount, there's two Muslim shrines there. The one with the black roof is called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's actually the holier of the two shrines, according to Islam. And the second one that's just 
ahead of it is called the Dome of the Rock. That's the one with the golden dome on the top. And so the Jews who are in Israel believe that Solomon's temple that they want to rebuild so desperately that's been leveled for some 2,000 years is supposed to go up there. So you can understand the tension. They want to build a temple up there, but you have two Muslim shrines up there and control has been given to the Arabs. So there's been a lot of tension up there. A lot of uh, threats and people wanting to bomb the place and you name it. A lot of demonstrations that happen up there. But there's been an interesting book that's come out. It's written by Bob Cornuke. I've mentioned it in past messages. And they call Bob a modern-day Indiana Jones. He's taken some research that's been done by others, and he's piggybacked on the research. And he's making a case that the temple in Jerusalem does not belong up on what is now considered the Temple Mount, but he's arguing that it should be just below that area and that that area considered the Temple Mount right now was actually a Roman fortress overlooking the Temple Mount that was down the hill a little bit. By the way, uh, when they talk about the Temple Mount, the rabbis and historians say that the temple precincts took up one-sixth of Jerusalem, so it dominated that whole area. When When you thought of Jerusalem, you just simply thought of the temple. Well, he's made a case and it's in the book, in the book Temple by Bob Cornuke, if you want to get a copy of it, that the temple should be down the hill a little bit. And that, that what's up there was a Roman fort to overlook things. And if that's true, can you imagine the implications of that? That means that Israel could rebuild their temple tomorrow. My understanding is that Bob Cornuke has had some discussions with people who are in authority in Israel about his findings. I don't know how far that's gone. Actually, Pastor Chris has a history with Bob Cornuke, and he was a police officer previously, right, a detective, so he brought some of those skills to the archaeology side, but anyway, so they were, they were very impressed with it, this, this was everything to the Jew, the building was everything, and so they point out the stones to Jesus, they said, look at the wonderful stones, look at this incredible building, Jesus, do you guys remember what impressed Jesus most in the temple the day that he was there, it was a, it was a little widow, who gave two mites, two coins, she gave everything she had. Jesus didn't care about all the fancy stuff. He looked at the heart. That's what impressed him most that day. But the temple was an impressive structure. It is said that the temple looked like a mountain of gold. Because of its nine massive gates, much of the temple's exterior was plated with gold and silver and jeweled sculptures such as the famous grapevine cluster the size of a man. It was adorned with white marble that adorned its upper reaches. Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound with mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it, the temple, appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon it and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. The rabbi said, he who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in his life. It was as if a mountain of white marble decora- was decorated with gold. The temple was an incredible architectural feat, but it also inspired awe in the Jewish mind. 
Hey folks, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, and we'll be back to the message in just a moment. We've been doing a Sunday night service called 633, and in it, we've been looking at a subject called the dark dangers of the occult. The occult speaks of that which is hidden, secret, literally occluded, behind the veil. People are fascinated with these subjects, but God warned in both the Old and New Testament that the occult is something that is forbidden and even dangerous. We want you to have access to these resources to teach you more about the occult so you can tell people who are dabbling in it or messing with it about the hope and the love and the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. You can access this information at our website, walkintruth.com. Grapevine cluster the size of a man. It was adorned with white marble that adorned its upper reaches. Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound with mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it, the temple appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white, From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon it and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. The rabbi said, he who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in his life. It was as if a mountain of white marble was decorated with gold. The temple was an incredible architectural feat but it also inspired awe in the Jewish mind as the abode of God, the socio-political center of the Jewish universe. It was a place of pride and a place of hope. That's why the next words of Jesus are so startling. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Jesus' prophecy, every stone There won't be one stone stacked upon another. Now, if you stand at what's called the Wailing Wall today, the Western Wall, and you look up to the Temple Mount, what do you have? Stones, what? Stacked one upon another. Some people say that's a retaining wall. Some people say that was part of the original temple. But how could it be if not one stone would be what? Left upon another, just something to think about. Maybe that helps Bob Cornuke's argument But here's what we have. Jesus makes this prophecy, and history tells us that this is exactly what happened to this area. This is no less than a prophecy given by Jesus. And the the question that should arise in our minds is, why did Jesus condemn the area? What was going on there that was so wrong? Well, we've already looked at it. When he came and cleansed the temple for what? The second time in his ministry, what did he find? He found an area that he called a den of thieves. He said, you've made my father's house into a den of robbers. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. And he up, overturned everything, right? Upset the apple cart. And the, even the Jewish writers of the time say that judgment came upon Israel in AD 70 because of the sin of Israel. And by the way, this is not the first time God did this. He judged Israel in the past. Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies in about 586 BC. We all know that story. God's done it before. And he did it again because Israel would put other things before God. 
Instead of bowing to God, they bowed to man and, and to religiosity and to a building instead of to God's glory. And Jerusalem fell, and it fell hard. Titus Vespasian, the uh, Roman general who came in, who was the son of the original general Vespasian that started this siege, first conquered Jerusalem. When he did, he ordered that the temple be preserved. But it was gutted by a fire set by one of his soldiers. As a result, Titus ordered the whole city and temple to be razed to the ground, a task especially carried out in respect to the temple as soldiers driven by avarice, that means by greed, pulled the stones apart in an attempt to reclaim the melted gold of the building. We, we've just heard a description that it was filled with gold and marble. So you can imagine that when people saw it up in flames and Roman soldiers who probably didn't make a lot of money all of a sudden saw this riches in front of them. Well, they did everything they could to get to everything, every piece of it. And the building was in upheaval. It was a stack of stones. This holy place was left as a whole pile of rubble. And it was destroyed. And that prophecy of debris it's still true today. The temple has not been rebuilt since A.D. 70. Yet in our lifetime, since 1967, in the last some 50 years, we've heard talk of a rebuilt temple. That's quite unique. And that's why students of prophecy are watching Israel, not with newspaper eschatology, not you know extreme, but, but you keep your eye over there because you know it's gonna be the center of everything that's happening in the world. Now, if you were one of the apostles and you heard Jesus say that all these stones are going down, what would your question be? I'd have two questions. When? <laughs> when is this gonna happen? And what will indicate that it's about to happen so I can make sure I'm not in town? Amen? Wouldn't you ask the same question? If you had Jesus there and Jesus just made this prophecy, I would be chomping at the bit to get information about what he just said, because I know everything he says comes to pass. And I've got family and friends and people I'm concerned about, so I'm gonna ask him. Well, you just said everything's going down here that's so impressive, it looks like it could never fall. Lord, when, when is this gonna happen? And as he was sitting, verse three, on the Mount of Olives, so he's now left the temple area, which is quite picturesque of the glory departing. He was opposite the temple, verse three, Mark 13, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Just a side note, two sets of brothers here. Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. And we find out something interesting about the Olivet Discourse or this sermon from the Mount of Olives. Jesus was asked privately by two sets of brothers what all this meant. These are the guys that asked. And, and I'm sure they quickly pulled him aside and said, Lord, we wanna know something. Tell us. And here's the question. They said, verse four, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Very natural question. In light of what he said, we wanna know, what, when is this gonna occur, Lord? Is there some sign associated or signs associated with it? If you look at Matthew's parallel account, which is one book back, Matthew 24, you'll see how Matthew records the question which adds a little bit more clarity to it. It's important to see. Matthew 24, Jesus has just predicted the fall of the temple, it being torn down. Matthew 24, three, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? Matthew 24, three, what will be the sign of what? Your coming and the end of the age. 
Now in Mark's account and even in Luke's account, it seems like their question more relates to the immediate uh, you know, future decades within their lifetime. But the way the question is framed in Matthew's account is quite interesting because it says that they asked him about the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now you might be asking, well what do the preterists do with this? Well the preterists say the end of the age is the end of the Jewish age. What they mean by that is when the temple fell, the Jewish age is over and the church age starts. That's kind of how they get around it. But what's interesting about this word in Matthew 24 or three, see the word coming there? It's a word called parousia. Here's how it's spelled, and it's an important word that you have in your uh, mind in terms of this study. The word is spelled P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, parousia, or some people pronounce it parousia. The word parousia denotes two things, an arrival and a consequent presence. It's two Greek words, para, which means with, and ousia means being. When will you come? When will you be here? It speaks of an arrival and an ongoing presence. Here's an example. Let's say that one of your family members was coming over for Thanksgiving dinner and they're stuck in freeway traffic and you said to them, when are you coming? What you mean by that is when are you gonna be here to enjoy dinner with your active presence here? Now certain family members may call and you may hope they never come and I totally understand that. (laughs) Just kidding. We were supposed to love everybody, right? So some of them you may think stay too long, but that's another story. But here, here's the deal. When are, if we said, when are you coming, what we mean is, when are you coming over to the house to enjoy this meal together? That's parousia. It means to come and stay. When is your active presence going to be here? When will you arrive and be here? That is parousia. When will you be uh, arriving, Okay. That's an important word. And then they say, look at verse three, what will be the sign of your coming? That's their question. One of these things is gonna happen. Seems like their question includes the temporal, uh, their lifetime, and far off into the future, back to Mark 13. This sometimes happens, and I just wanna clarify something for you students of the Bible. When you see a discourse given in multiple books of the Bible, for example, the discourse of The Olivet Sermon is given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you see the resurrection recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you take the four gospel accounts and blend them to get the full picture. Here's how it works. If you and I walked outside today and we saw an accident on River Road, God forbid, and we saw the color of the car and the details and how the persons reacted and so forth, each of us would bring a different perspective to what we viewed. Our perspectives would be complementary and hopefully not contradictory. We'd each be an eyewitness, but we would tell the story from our perspective or all the things that we retained. When the Gospels show you multiple accounts of a different teaching, Your job as a student of the Bible is to blend them and see how they fit together to make the whole of the teaching make sense. Everybody with me? That's how it works. So that you have to see that Matthew's account is not contradictory, it's complementary. There's a little bit more detail given often in some of the Gospels. Some of the Gospels are very succinct. Mark's Gospel is known to be a very succinct, to-the-point Gospel. Bam, 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 bam. 
Whereas Luke and Matthew take a little bit more time to develop ideas. Both are true. You just get a little bit more detail as you look at the supplementary passages. Everybody understand what I'm saying? This is how you're supposed to interpret the Bible. And, and of course, it's important that you read your Bible and study it so you can get the full picture. So they've asked these questions. Back to Mark 13, verse 5. I'm going to keep you, everybody okay? Do we need to pass any peanuts out? Everybody, everybody good? Jesus began to say to them, Mark 13, 5, see to it, they asked, well, what should we look for? See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, I take that as the name of Jesus, Mark 13, 6, and they'll be saying, I am. He is, in, in italics or in parentheses, it's added by the translators. They'll literally be saying, I am. And they will mislead many. Notice the word many. Many will come and many will be misled. Shouldn't be surprising to us. We, we know in the first century many false Christs and false messiahs rose up from the time Jesus died till the fall of Jerusalem. They would come into the temple. They would claim that they're the Messiah. And of course, they were all proven to be false. In 1 John 2, 18, we're told that even now many antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. We know up and through our day, we've had people claim to be the Messiah. We've had David Koresh claim to be Jesus Christ. We had the whole incident with Jim Jones, right? And even on the Bible Answer Show not that long ago, we had a caller call, and she said, you, you've all got it wrong about the second coming of the Lord. And we're like, what? Where's she going with this question? She said, it's all wrong. It's a lie. And we're like, we're just hearing her out. And she said, I am. And we're like, what? What'd she say? I didn't know that the Messiah was female. But anyway... <laughs> And she said, I am, a couple of different times. That's when we, <laughs> this is a sign we have in the radio program. No mas. Cut them off. Put them on hold. She, she was saying she was the Messiah. Well, this has happened all throughout history. In fact, there's whole movements today that are trying to teach you that you're God. Did you know that? You just have to realize your deity and all your problems will be gone. You'll lose weight. You won't binge shop anymore. Just realize there's a deity in you. Oh my goodness. That's, well, yeah, if you have the Lord Jesus in you, <laughs> that's one thing. But not thinking that you are God, right? That's the oldest lie in the book. Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael and I appreciate you listening to today's message. I wanna tell you about the store at walkintruth.com. On the store, we have a brand new teaching up. It's on the occult. It's called The Dark Dangers of the Occult. And we have taught on the subject of demon possession. And we also have taught on the subject of Wicca or witchcraft. And there's more to come. And you need to know about this subject. You need to know what's going on with the occult, what the Bible says about it. It warns about it being forbidden. It warns that you should not mess with it. But there's also something else. We need to reach out to people in love with the truth of Jesus who've gotten involved in the occult. You can have access to this information, these resources to learn more and to become a more effective ambassador for Christ. It's all available at the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, 
walkintruth.com.